Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Political Rewind. If my voice sounds a little unfamiliar, don't worry, you're in the right place. I'm Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I'm filling in today for my friend Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us as we continue to improvise on Political Rewind, doing the show remotely. So, But before we begin, I, I wanted to share with you the latest news on the pandemic before we get into our conversation. Um, and once we, do, once we do that, we're going to spend most of our time today on Georgia politics. So here are the latest uh, COVID-19 headlines. Georgia now has over 29,000 confirmed cases of the disease. The Metro Atlanta counties do still lead in that count with Fulton having over 3,000, DeKalb nearly 2,300, and Gwinnett County nearly 2,100. The death toll in Georgia now stands at 1,246. A CDC report presented to the White House show that the virus continues to worsen in many parts of Georgia, despite the weeks of social distancing. Metro Atlanta and other populous regions of the state are among the areas whose burden continues to grow, according to the CDC. And really what has happened is that the diagnoses have leveled off at a high plateau. That very same report estimates deaths from the virus will reach 3,000 a day nationwide by June. That's a lot higher than the current daily average of about 1,750. Those numbers also suggest a U.S. death toll that will far exceed 100,000 people. Governor Kemp defended his decision to lift his shelter-in-place order in a conference call with economist Stephen Moore, who's a member of President Donald Trump's Economic Task Force, and with FreedomWorks, a conservative organization that helped foster the Tea Party movement. Kemp said Georgia is, quote, just so much better prepared now than we were a month or six weeks ago. We're buckling in for the long haul, he said. And according to a Washington Post University of Maryland poll, Americans clearly oppose the reopening of restaurants, retail stores, and other businesses, even as governors begin to lift restrictions. The opposition to reopening those businesses reflects fears among most people that they could become infected by the coronavirus, as well as the belief that the worst of the medical crisis isn't yet over. Okay, we've got a great show today and great guests. We'll be talking about big numbers of voters who've requested absentee ballots in Georgia and what that might mean. Also, the state budget is in big, big trouble because of all of the spending to fight the pandemic. And then we'll also spend some time talking about how the state's political races are shaping up, including the, the two for the Senate seats. Don't forget, you can log on to the GPB News Facebook page right now and listen. Because we're now doing the show remotely, you'll have an audio feed, but not a video feed. We will, however, monitor your comments. And you can also comment on Twitter by going to the at politics GPB. Okay, I've mentioned our guests a couple times, so let's meet them. First, Aaron Johnson, who is the founder and CEO at Paramount Consulting. He led 
the national campaign strategy in 11 key southern states for President Barack Obama's reelection campaign. Darren, it's good to be with you again, even though it's only via audio and video rather than in person. How are you doing? Doing well. I miss you guys, but I'm happy to be on the show with you. Okay. Uh, next, Jackie Cushman. She's a speaker, a columnist, an author. You can read her columns at townhall.com, a frequent guest on this show. Jackie, good to see you as well. Great to be on. Thanks for having me today. And finally, my colleague from the AJC is joining us, Tamar Hollerman. After working in Washington for us, Tamar moved back to Atlanta late last year. And since then, an awful lot of news has broken out. I don't know how she got the news to follow her so closely, but she's in the thick of a lot of coverage, including things on the pandemic and politics. So it's good to talk to you, Tamar. Good. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Okay. All right. First, I wanted to talk about absentee ballots. And I'll, and I'll confess that I, myself, have, have applied for an absentee ballot, and I've never done that before. So I have lots of, of questions. But let's just, um, let's talk about the numbers. And, and I'm going to come to probably Theron and Jackie, one of you first, because I'd like to know from your perspective what it means. But according to GeorgiaVotes.com, 1,000, I'm sorry, 1,128,000 100,000, let's just call it 1.1 million, I can't quite get the numbers out, (laughs) have applied to vote by mail. And about 45% have applied for the Democratic ballot. About 52% have applied for the Republican ballot. And then about uh, 3.5% have applied for a nonpartisan ballot. So those numbers in relative terms are massive uh, compared to what is typical uh, in terms of requests for absentee ballots. So, uh, Theron, I'll start with you. What does this mean? Well, what this means, Kevin, is you got to give some credit to the Secretary of State's office for sort of having a post-COVID-19 strategy in place uh, with this new norm of how we're going to vote for people who we want to support. Uh, what you're seeing is a direct result of what has historically been the case for Republicans, you know, and Jackie knows this. Historically, if you go back to the Ralph Reed days when he sort of emerged with a Christian coalition here in Georgia, one of the tactics that they used successfully to sort of get Republicans back to dominance in the state was vote by mail, sort of absentee voting. Well, Kevin, in 2018, Stacey Abrams sort of changed the game. And what she did is that she adopted a program to really encourage sporadic or low propensity voters to vote by mail, but also people who were traditionally Democratic voters who like to go to the, um, you know, the, the election sites on election day, uh, really encourage them to vote early or to vote by mail. And so what you're doing now, what you're seeing now is folks like me, Kevin, I'm the exact opposite. I'm like you. I've never voted absentee. I think maybe I voted absentee one time when I was in Chicago reelecting President Barack Obama. <laughs> But I still haven't turned in my application because I'm one of those Georgians that still believes that there may be a possible way for us to vote in person. But listen, would you see the numbers you just gave, 52, 45? That's a good sign for Democrats, probably even better sign for Republicans if you're running statewide. But in these local races around the state, if you got 45 percent of the people who have requested Democratic ballots, that's showing uh, a lot of enthusiasm, and we've come a long way to where we were even just less than four years ago. Jackie, what's your take on this? 
Well, I think a couple of things, right? Uh, Theron's right. There are a lot of people like myself and you, Kevin, that are now doing the absentee ballot because, you know, we're not sure what's going to happen. We want to make sure we vote. We always vote. We usually vote in person. But I usually wait for the voting day, for the day of voting, and don't even early vote because I like to go the day. This is, you know, the way I feel. The other thing I think it reflects is the realities of especially where we're out, you know, where, we, where people live. So, for instance, um, Mary Norwood, who is very active in the Buckhead area, as you know, she's actually encouraged Republican voters to ask for a Democratic ballot because in two of the races, there are no Republicans running, but there are Democrat contenders. So, for instance, the district attorney, which Paul Howard has featured, Kevin, as you know, on the front of the AJC today um, and some investigation by the GBI. But there are Democrats running in that election, and there are also only Democrats running in the, for the sheriff slot. So those races will be picked in the Democratic primary because they have no Republican opponent. So for people in the Buckhead area that are concerned about crime and safety, it makes sense for them to actually pull a Democratic ballot versus a Republican one in this primary. But Jackie, just to be clear again, because I'm a novice uh, uh, voter uh, when it comes to voting this way, as you mentioned, um, if you follow Mary Norwood's advice, doesn't that leave you out of some other decisions you may want to be involved in? Or is that a unique thing to living in that area? It does. But if you look at it, depends on where you where you are in other areas. And there I'll talk about this as well, but it depends on where you live geographically. So in some cases, yes, it could. But in other cases, you know, the other really big competitive race we'll talk about later between Republicans statewide is the Kelly Loeffler seat. And, you know, that's not a primary seat. That's a general election jungle, you know, election. So that doesn't come into play. So there are it depends geographically where you are. And I'm going to hand it over to my colleagues there and to, um, to get more detail. So to really break this down and make it plain, like my grandmother uh, would say, is it's, it's really to me shocking that, you know, Mary Norwood is, is doing this. And then let's talk about what Jackie just mentioned. She's encouraging traditional hardcore Republicans to basically sort of switch over and to vote in a Democratic primary for sheriff and for DA. And what's so interesting about this, Kevin, is that, you know, the only way we can tell if someone has voted Republican or Democrat in the state is that you have to request a Republican or Democratic primary ballot. For those people who don't vote in primary elections, they mm -hmm. vote in November in the general elections, we're not able to tell their party allegiance. And so to, to Jackie's point is I don't think that the Norwood strategy is going to work. You know, Mary Norwood is someone who I know very well. I beat her twice for Atlanta mayor's races, born with Christine Reed and now with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. And what she's doing is exactly what Jackie just said, which is trying to get these folks to pull a Democratic ballot because there's just not a lot of action in the state of Atlanta. On the Republican side, I don't believe it's going to work because I think that if you are a true Republican, you want to continue to vote in Republican primaries. Now, there are those disaffected Republican women who, Jackie, you know, I like to talk about a lot, who Mary Norwood may be able uh, to persuade. But ultimately, this is something that Democrats need to be very worried about, Kevin, because it's been happening. Let's be honest. We do it sometimes, too, but it never mm -hmm. works. We always look at the numbers afterwards, and, it, and we never see that sort of bump that uh, our party was hoping for if we encourage people to vote uh, against someone in a Republican primary. So, Tamar, uh, as you can tell, our two uh, guests cleverly were able to both bring up Paul Howard and then Republican disaffected women. I mean, um, but in the, in the big picture, uh, from your point of view, I mean, 
what do you think is going on, and will this translate to the November election? Because we're really talking about this primary in June, right? And I wonder if people will will be as willing or or able to to do it then. One thing I'm looking at as I I look at these numbers is just a sense of enthusiasm that you're getting, um, especially comparing the numbers that we're seeing now to turnout in the 2018 general election. And that's when we saw a big suburban sweep for Democrats in not only the 6th congressional district, but in a lot of these legislative seats where we saw these Democratic newbies take out Republican incumbents. Um, That was when Stacey Abrams was running, obviously. That was the first midterm election after Trump was elected. Um, but, But this is a sign, you know, and, and we can see how many folks requested Republican ballots versus Democratic. And we're seeing enthusiasm on both sides, especially in races where there is a Republican primary. But I think it's worth noting, especially in Cobb County, um, which is where we saw a lot of these seats flip in 2018. Um, in the 11th congressional district, where Barry Loudermilk, uh, which Barry Loudermilk, a Republican, represents, we saw 32 percent more Democratic ballots requested already for this primary than were cast two years ago. Republican uh, requests are, are up about 6 percent. Um, and then you look at the, um, you know, the, the portion of Cobb County in the 6th district. That's where Lucy McBath defeated Karen Handel, the biggest upset of 2018. And requests for Demo- Democratic ballots are up by over 30 percent compared to 2018. And, you know, we don't know if those folks are going to come back in November, but, but that's a good sign for, for Democrats right now that, that they can keep um, the enthusiasm going with their base. Yeah, we've reported that Fulton County has processed just 35,000 absentee ballot applications out of the 135,000 that have been requested. So that it remains to be seen um, how that will, you know, how that will turn out. But uh, I don't know, this is kind of a technical question, but if someone requests an absentee ballot, must they use it or can they instead choose to go to the uh, ballot to just simply vote on Election Day? I, I'll throw that out to anyone who might have the answer. And if, if not, maybe Tom, our uh, producer, can figure out if there's a there's a way to know the answer to that question. Uh, uh, Darren, do you happen to know whether if I requested a, a, a absentee ballot, can I just instead choose to go vote on Election Day instead? I suspect, Kevin, that you can. Um, and again, Tom, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, because I think that you, in my past work as campaign uh, managers for a lot of different people, we've seen where senior citizens, are particularly are folks who like to vote absentee, but when we sort of encourage them to go out and vote and they voted, I don't think there's been any sort of problems with them um, sort of being either purged or kicked off of, of the list. But I think I'm going to fall in that category, Kevin. I'm probably out there, you know, listening to you and Jackie today, going to go and probably turn in my application. But what we're seeing in Fulton County really quickly, I'm hearing from a lot of people, particularly uh, in, in, in Fulton County, is that uh, the signatures doesn't match or certain misinformation. And so that's sort of been sort of the technicality that's been the holdup for some of these uh, ballots being sent out in Fulton County. Well, we'll we'll try to get an answer to that question. I didn't mean to confuse confuse people any more than perhaps I normally do when okay. I'm on the show. But um, so, Jackie, I'm going to come to you next. And I actually don't. Oh, I don't really like to do this to you because uh, you know people know you're Newt Gingrich's daughter. But I know you as I I knew you before I actually realized you were his daughter. So I know that you have your own you know your own view on things and and aren't always uh, probably thrilled to to be talked about that way. But 
your dad has weighed in here on this uh, mail-in ballot controversy, for example. And he has said, uh, and I'm just going to read this quote, and, and then I'll get you to react, and then I'll ask others. There are 462 counties in the United States which have more registered voters than they have eligible people to vote. So they literally have either dead people, people who have moved on, you name it, but they have a huge pool of unverifiable people registered. And if you go to vote by mail and you add into that vote harvesting or ballot harvesting, it is a ripe field for Democrats to simply drown the system. So it's kind of raises that specter of voter fraud, which, again, is a very polarizing issue. But way in there, Jackie. And then uh, I'm going to come to our other guest next. Oh, absolutely. So two things. First of all, um, and Darren and I have talked about this before. I mean, my, my personal position is I want everyone to be able to vote. Everyone that's eligible to vote that should, that should be voting, I want them to vote, whether it's absentee, in person, I don't care. And I think all candidates, quite frankly, should feel that way. So that's, that's my personal kind of perspective. I know there's some others. Um, but secondarily, I do think we need to be concerned about the integrity of elections, regardless of whether they're mailed in or regardless of whether it's um, in person. But I do think it's very important from a belief in the system that we should believe two things. One, that everybody that is eligible to vote is able to vote. So I'm definitely on that side as well. We need to make sure that that happens. And that only those that are eligible actually vote. So um, I think when you look at the con in that context, it is concerning from both sides, from anybody, quite frankly, that if you have more people that are requesting ballots than are actually on the ballot rolls, that should be of concern because that doesn't make sense. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So I think we need to frame it in two different ways. And I don't think it really has anything to do with party. I think it has to do with the fact that we need to have in our country elections that have integrity. Sarah, do you want to weigh in here? You know, I, I, when at first glance, any time where, you know, Newt Gingrich says something, and Jackie knows that I've read her father's books and, you know, definitely actually think he's one of the smartest part politicians we've ever had out of the great state of Georgia. Um, but, you know, when I when I first read it, I was like, okay, sick, you know, typical sicker shot when, when, when Newt Gingrich says something, and not in a bad way, but just let me really pay attention to what he's saying. And so, Kevin, what I did is I, you know, did a little research and kind of pondered on it last night. And what I think is interesting to me is that, you know, as soon as we see a universal vote by mail uh, sort of plan introduced, the Republicans suddenly are terrified. Uh, and if it, even if it, there's one case of voter fraud, you know, we remember back when President Trump was going through his election in 2016, he kind of alerted us uh, with, with, with voter fraud. But one thing that it's interesting to me, too, is that, you know, we don't hear as much when it comes to, like, matching signatures and implementing ID requirements and, you know, and closing polling places. Those are usually the time where you see a lot of Democrats come out. But I think that the bottom line is this, is that whenever you have this new system that the state of Georgia has never really done to this magnitude of before, you're going to have problems. I mean, let me just say that. You, we're gonna, you guys are going to write about the AJC. There's going to be some irregularities. There are going to be people, like I mentioned before, that are going to receive their ballots late for a lot of technical reasons. And so I think what's really interesting is, is that, you know, it really kind of is left up to us as voters to make sure that once we complete the application, take a picture of it. Um, if you don't receive your ballot in time, um, you know, make sure you follow up. And if you receive a application to someone who you know is either dead or doesn't live at your house, you know, sort of, you know, let the secretary of state's office know. And so, 
I'm the one saying, Kevin, I'm predicting that there are going to be some follow-up stories because Georgia just has never really embarked upon this massive uh, vote-by-mail program that we're about to endure. Okay, one thing uh, Tom has checked, and in fact, you can go and show up to vote if you've got an absentee ballot, but apparently the best way to do that is to bring your absentee ballot with you based on the information we know, so we're able to clear that up. Um, Tamar, um, I know that you have covered different voting issues, um, not really your beat at the paper. We rely on Mark Nisi for that. But, uh, I mean, reaction to the idea of uh, this concern about mail-in balloting? Yeah, I mean, well, well first of all, I want to go back to Speaker Gingrich's comments. Um, you know, he's talking about that there might have been dead people, and, and he does talk about people who've moved. But I, I think it's worth kind of diving in. And, you know, he, he's talking a lot about inactive voters, and, and most of those people have just moved. It's, it's very rare to hear about dead people casting ballots. Um, and so, you know, th- these people may be registered to vote, but if they've moved, you know, they're, they're not going to be voting at that location. Um, you know, often these people are not going and, and voting in their old districts or, or anything like that. Um, and, and often campaigns just ignore those people, the, what they're called in, inactive voters. So I think it's important to note that, too. Yeah, and, and I, I do think it's also, um, I mean, if we can look for some common ground among everyone. Um, of course, people who can vote should should be able to vote, and people should have to be eligible to vote in, in whatever way. But voter fraud is actually an extremely rare thing, despite the fact that it comes up so often, and people want to make an issue out of it, it, it. Cases of it are extremely rare, as we have as we have demonstrated in in so much of our our own reporting. Um, well, listen, I think it's a good time to take a break. Again, we're operating remotely, so I hope that I'm not uh, surprising uh, anybody, including our, our producers. Uh, let, let's go ahead and get that break in. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the state budget. It looks like the legislature will return to its session at some point, and they will have to deal with massive cuts because that budget is in real trouble. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. We'll be back right after this. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm filling in for Bill Nye today. Back with me are Theron Johnson, a Democratic strategist, Jackie Cushman, a columnist and author, and Tamara Hollerman, uh, my colleague from, from the AJC. Okay, so there's, there's still some debate over when the state legislature should resume its session. As we know, they've we're quarantined as the session end. There's been a debate about exactly who brought the coronavirus to this, to the Gold Dome. But no matter what they do and when they do it, there's only one big thing before them, and that's the problems with the state budget. 
Um, I've got a pile of stories over here uh, on my desk about all the things uh, that loom. But in the end, state agencies have been told to plan on cutting more than $3.5 billion from their budgets for fiscal year 2021, which begins July 1st. And this thing looks like it can only get worse as the state has been forced to spend all kinds of money uh, to battle the coronavirus. And even though Georgia had really built up a strong reserve during Nathan Deal's, uh, you know, two terms, it looks like schools are in trouble. It looks like teacher races are in trouble. It looks like a hope for a uh, tax uh, cut is, is in trouble. Georgia has about $2.7 billion in reserves, but it's not expected to last long in this environment. So, Tamar, I mean, uh, what can the legislators do? I mean, what choices do they have? <laughs> they don't have a ton of choices because unlike in Washington, where I covered the budget for a couple of years, uh, state legislators don't, you know, they're, they're not able to use a credit card to, to just keep piling on spending. They have to balance their budgets every year. Um, so that means a couple of things, you know, cut, 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 which is the most likely outcome right now. They could raise taxes or revenues elsewhere. There's, you know, Democrats always talk about raising the cigarette tax, uh, that sort of thing, the gas tax potentially. Um, and then there's also crossing your fingers and hoping that Washington will, will help bail you out, send some money. Um, and, and that's a real question right now. Governor Kemp has really been pushing that, um, especially with uh, President Trump whenever he's, he's on the line with him. Um, but there's a real question about appetite for that right now. You hear Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell who, who talks about kind of bailing out blue states, he sees it as, as a bad thing. And so it's very possible the state gets nothing from Washington. Right now, it's looking like the most likely course is going to be cutting. Um, you know, agency heads this week were, were given a directive to cut budgets by 14 percent, um, and that includes no exceptions. Whereas earlier this session, you know, the governor exempted K-12 through education, Medicaid, the road building agency. Um, this time around, he said, nope, everyone has to cut. So painful, uh, some painful weeks ahead, certainly. So, Jackie, we all know that from the Republican side, um, they, the Republicans never want to be seen as increasing taxes. And normally when that happens, they find a way to do it so that they don't have to talk about it that way. Do you think the coronavirus and this crisis and people's uh, sensitivity to it give Republicans some cover to go after at least some of the kinds of taxes that remain, I wouldn't say they remain popular, but for which there's a less strong constituency like cigarette tax and things like that? What, I mean, or do you think they'll just insist on cutting their way to, to balancing it? Um, I think they're going to do, do um, anything they can, quite frankly. I mean, they get to go and look at the entire budget. And uh, tomorrow's right, they used to have only a part of the budget they could look at. Now they're looking at everything, right? So they're going to turn over every rock they can, look for everywhere to cut. And I do think, Kevin, um, I do think that clearly the tax cut that they had mentioned earlier this year, I mean, last year, really, is off the table. So that's off the table. Um, and they probably will look at other potential revenue um, you know, increases that are not, you know, basic income tax type programs. So to your point, a cigarette tax, possibly looking at um, some type of gambling or something else, you know, what else can we do as a state to bring in money? But how can we do it in a way in which, because I mean, the reality is not only is the state budget affected, right? They have, but, but everyone's personal budget, right? I mean, so everyone's kind of going through 
you know, what, what can I do? What can I not do? You know, how do, how do I either, you know, add some money, you know, get a new job, I mean, look for work. I just had a friend who got laid off and she actually landed another job. So, you know, so everyone's kind of in this as well, trying to figure out personally, how do they make sure that they have enough of their household? So, Tamar, um, you, you mentioned a, a couple of uh, potential places where relief might come, but but there's not a lot of optimism. Exactly. I mean, you, <laughs> right now, I think everybody's waiting for, for Congress to kind of swoop in on their, their white horse and, and save the day. And if I've learned anything in my years in D.C. is you, you don't want to count on Congress, especially acting on, on kind of a tight timeline, and especially now that that it seems to have become so partisan, this idea of state aid. Again, we've heard Mitch McConnell talk about even letting states go bankrupt, potentially, and, and restructuring their debt. Um, that Those comments cut a lot of flack, but but that doesn't exactly bode well for, for the situation in Washington so far. Um, so I, you know, and, and one other point I'd like to make is that, you know, <laughs> all the priorities that these lawmakers had before the coronavirus hit, all of these new programs that they wanted to start all go by the wayside now. Um, I remember writing about paid family leave and um, Speaker Ralston wanting to give three weeks of, of paid family leave for including to all the state's teacher, teachers, 200,000 state employees, um, extending Medicaid for, for new moms um, in order to fight the state's stubborn maternal mortality rate. I bet that goes by the wayside too. I think right now everyone is sort of in crisis mode um, trying to get through this, but it, it certainly is not going to be pretty with 14% cuts. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues that I, you know, I paid a lot of attention to, we did all that reporting on uh, senior care homes, right, and and the shortcomings in how the state regulates those homes and is become very apparent in, in this crisis. In fact, it's one of the key places where Governor Kemp has insisted on very strong measures in his orders. He's used the National Guard, as we've written about, to uh, try to keep the homes safe. We know that those places remain hotspots of um, the coronavirus. And now um, we, as you know, on our opinion pages, advocated for a change in that regulation, including a bigger investment in staffing and training and, and all those things. And that, that is not really being mentioned. And it's, it, it's really a shame because it certainly has played out in this crisis. Uh, Theron, one of the other things that's out there that, um, you know, some people think this is the reason that uh, Governor Kemp was able to beat Stacey Abrams was he promised teachers that raise. And, of course, uh, they only got part of it in the first time around, and it's in the first budget that the governor really put put out there and worked with the legislature on. And now uh, there were a lot of there were a lot of deba debates about it, and at one point, I think it was Governor Ralston, who's, or, I'm sorry, Speaker Ralston, who said he didn't make that campaign promise. But what do you think happens to that teacher raise? But more importantly, what's the fallout if if the teachers don't get that raise? Well, well Kevin, you're exactly right. I mean, this this uh, sort of promise that was made by Governor Kemp and somewhat halfway fulfilled last year. Is something that not only did he run on, but it's something that I think that he wants to finish and accomplish. And while the speaker, Speaker Ralston, did say that that's not a promise that he made, he has gone on the record repeatedly saying that, of course, he supports teachers and so thinks that they should get the pay raise because they not only deserve it, but uh, they've earned it. And so I think, you know, to, to Jackie and Tamar's point, 
you know, as a registered lobbyist down in the state capitol, I, I kind of take you inside of what I'm hearing from legislatures, uh, legislators, is that you're right, Kevin, it's going to be all about priorities. I mean, you guys, AJC, have definitely injected your opinions in this sort of legislative process. But I do think that by Speaker Ralston saying, hey, we're going to come back on June 11th, and I think he's absolutely right on that decision. I want to go on the record for saying I think we need that time uh, at a time where we, we're still seeing the numbers go up in Georgia a little bit with, te- uh, with people coming back testing positive. We're expecting more deaths. I think the legislature is going to need more time. But back to your, to your point about teachers, I believe that Governor Kemp is, is prioritized safety. I think he definitely wants to rebuild the uh, Georgia economy and stabilize it, particularly with small business. But I guarantee you he is employing his team to figure out a way, if any, to try to see if we can, he can honor that commitment, that promise uh, to Georgia's teachers to try to get them the remaining amount of the uh, teacher pay raise that they were promised. Tamara, you want to weigh in on that one, I bet. <laughs> yeah, well, I also want to mention, you know, he has all these, uh, you know, all these legislators have all these holes in the budget that they need to plug, but but there's also public health commitments going forward. Um, Something my colleagues and I are working on right now is a story about contact tracing, which is something that the Department of Public Health uh, thinks is very critical going forward. If if Governor Kemp wants to be reopening the state's contact tracing along with testing is going to be a really critical way to help contain the the coronavirus. Um, But the state won't be able to do so much if it doesn't have more funding to be able to back that up. Um, you know, public health experts are saying you need thousands of contact tracers in order to do the job appropriately. So can legislators find the money to help beef up public health in a moment where that that need is so dire? That'll also be another big question. Well, you make a good point. You know, the contact tracing thing has come up uh, plenty of times, but there's been no indication that the state is really, really serious about it, even though it's other states have gotten serious about it, and even though experts in pandemics will tell you it's crucial, right? The state is just starting to, to really build up its capabilities there. It's had some contact tracers uh, on the payroll for a while, tracking things like measles and tuberculosis and HIV AIDS. And now you see Kathleen Toomey, the, the public health head, mentioning she wants to move people over from other state agencies, getting volunteers from Georgia's medical schools and public health colleges, potentially deploying the National Guard to help out with that. Um, But you talk to these experts and they say the state needs to do way more than that. Dr. Toomey has mentioned investing in an app to help with that. But you talk to a lot of critics who say, look, Georgia has shortchanged public health for a long time in these budgets, you know, 10 plus years, that the state has a lot of backfilling to do. Um, and, And it's going to be a real question whether legislators see it that way and whether there's any room right now in the state budget in order to to help help beef up a lot of those capabilities. Jackie, uh, Tamar makes the point that one of the burdens that the state is bearing and is is growing and and not entirely new, but there are new aspects to it, is public health and health care overall. I mean, do you think there's any chance that the, the Medicaid debate will change in Georgia. I mean, in theory, right, there would be money sitting out there. Uh, or, or will the state consider actually cutting? I mean, because it's a very expensive program along with other um, medical and health issues, even, even though we know that parts of the state, particularly rural Georgia, has suffered not just in the pandemic, but even before. 
I think this is going to be an area, um, and tomorrow wrote about, wrote about um, maternal mortality earlier on before the pandemic started. This is an area that Speaker Ralston has been very vocal about, trying to fig- wanting to figure out how do we do more for rural hospitals, how do we actually, he is um, with considering a proposal to increase coverage for, mater- for, for women after they're giving birth to make sure that they had the, the care they needed to help with this maternal mortality. So it's clearly been a, um, an area of interest and an area of um, focus for Speaker Rawson. I think this is going to be really interesting to see how they weigh those different objectives and figure out how do you actually make progress in those areas. But still, as we all know, they have to come back with a balanced budget. So this is going to be a really, a really hard session for them. And, and to echo on that, I want to be very clear. I, I totally agree with Tamar that, and Jackie, particularly around maternal uh, mortality. This is an issue that is killing women, particularly uh, black women uh, in our state. And, and I just employ every legislator who's listening to try to make sure that that serves as a priority, but also to getting into the Department of, of Health. You know, open, wake up this morning and I get your digital copy of the AJC, and the first thing I see is a sort of contradictory uh, contradiction of what we hear locally with the CDC saying about the number of cases that we're seeing for COVID-19 and the number of deaths and how it's particularly uh, going to affect the African-American community. And I've said this on other programs. I think that the governor and the state need to not be afraid to address this head on that COVID-19 is disproportionately killing African-Americans, Hispanics, and poor people. We can't ignore the socioeconomic impact that this is having. So I think when the legislature reconvenes, you better bet that legislators, and I think in a bipartisan way, are going to address the socioeconomic impact that we're going to see from COVID-19 and coronavirus, but also how we've got to make sure we have the right messenger around what they're talking about, uh, how does this sort of have a racial component to it. And I think, Sarah, I want to pick up from that and say, I think it also, I hope it also helps us rethink um, longer term going forward, because, you know, the, the reasons for that are not, they're not race-based, it's their comorbidities. So it, it's diabetes, it's high blood pressure, it's obesity. It's not, you know, so I want to make sure that people understand that that's really what, what we're talking about. And the way you really, um, you know, fix that is a couple of ways. One is increased access to outdoors and to parks and to be able to, to get out and exercise. And as you all know, I've been involved with the Trust for Public Land for decades. And that's one of the things we really look at is how do we make sure everybody is within a 10-minute walk of a park so they can have access. And that's very, very, very important um, to be able to do that. And secondarily, are what are the food supplies and food programs so that people have access and can afford, right, healthy, healthy food? Because a lot of the, um, the underlying health issues are made worse by, you know, um, food insecurity, lack of access to healthy food, and um, poor diet and nutrition, and then, then lack of being outside and getting exercise. So I think, I really hope that we take a step back and figure out not only the, for the short term, but for me, more importantly, the long term, how do we fix those underlying issues so that you don't have the same problem going forward? Yeah, and, and I think that we're going to uh, probably get close to taking our last break here, Tom. But one thing I wanted to mention before we go into that break is that I can tell you that at the AJC and hearing from readers and, and even talking to people um, in healthcare, there's been a lot of frustration with the Department of Public Health Health's ability to uh, communicate and share statistics and numbers. Now, I understand this is not a simple thing, and I think everybody understands that, but I think it's exposed um, in a very easy-to-see way the shortcomings in the state's public health 
system, its public health approach, its public health infrastructure. And I would, you know, to, to echo what Theron said, I do think people will be calling for uh, the public health system of Georgia to, to, if nothing else, have a better sense of what's going on, better intelligence, because if we're going to solve some of these problems as a state, no matter what they are and no matter what politics comes into play about what the priorities should be, it's impossible to solve them if we don't actually know what's going on. And that's one of the things that I think the trouble with the statistics sometimes reveals is how difficult it is for Georgians, our readers, our reporters, and everyone who cares about this to really know what's going on. Okay, it's time for our last break. And when we come back, We'll talk about the political campaigns and races in Georgia, a favorite topic of, of this panel. So get ready. This is Political Rewind on GPB. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, filling in today for Bill Nygut. Here with me are Darren Johnson, Jackie Cushman, and Tamar Hollerman. From the AJC, I uh, should say I, I said here with me, but actually we're doing the show remotely as uh, Political Rewind continues to improvise, and I'm actually very proud to be part of it and to have been uh, for a while now as the show has been done remotely, but continues every day with the help of uh, Tom Faust, our producer, and Bill's efforts and others back at GPB. So thank you so much. Okay, let's get into the status of political campaigns and races uh, here in Georgia. I would like to start with Kelly Leffler. And the reason I would like to start with Kelly Leffler, um, I know you all may have different reasons you would like to start with Kelly Leffler, but she did release some campaign ads. I think it was yesterday. And I just wanted, I think uh, we can just hear the audio and they're very telling. And then I'm going to come first to you, Jackie, and then to you, Theron, then to you, Tamar, to get your take on one thing that I think is mentioned in the ad and anything else you want to say about it. So, Tom, uh, let's play that ad. The liberals unfairly target President Trump every day, just like they're unfairly targeting conservative Kelly Loeffler. But they're both standing strong. Kelly donated her Senate pay to fight coronavirus. Kelly used her personal plane to bring stranded Georgians home safely. And Kelly gave a million dollars to keep a Georgia hospital going when it mattered most. Kelly Leffler for Georgia, standing strong to save lives. I'm Kelly Leffler. I approve this message. Okay, uh, we've got a lot of political wisdom in this panel. So we're going to start with uh, 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 someone who's probably lived in politics her whole life in one way or another, Jackie. Um, i got to ask you about this. Has your dad ever mentioned... In a campaign ad that he had used his personal plane to do some good. Well, um, he's never had a personal plane, so that would be really challenging for him. Um, so the answer is no, clearly. And I, I don't, I can't really figure out. Uh, maybe Theron can help me, but um, what what they're trying to do? I mean, obviously, you know, she's she's a novice in politics. Uh, we knew this going in. Um, I, you know, money, they, I think he was attracted because she could self-fund, which clearly she's self-funding. But when you have, when you have, um, it's, it's as though consultants are trying to figure out where to put her. It's like, you know, she's, she's far right, but then Collins is the one actually asking about the stock trade. So he's not a liberal. So that's super confusing to me. I don't know how talking about 
private planes and donations of millions really connect her with the average voter, which was the original intent to connect her with suburban moms. And so that's not really happening. And if you look at the poll numbers, I think she's polling, you know, far, far below Doug Collins. And so, you know, at this, at this point, quite frankly, it looks like there's a bit of, let's see if we can find some feet to put under us and not really sure where those feet are. All right, Theron. Um, you, I, I could see you getting excited to answer this question. Um, would you put someone's personal plane in a campaign ad? Well, you know, we've been talking about this use of the personal plane for a long time, Kevin. I mean, and you know, I'm I'm one who is a huge fan of Delta, and I think that any member of Congress, if they have a personal plane, they have the money to to do it, they should, you know, they should have that right. But the difference is that when you're running for public office and you're an elected official at a time when we see the American people losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, some millions, it's just not optically a good move on, on her part. I mean, and it's very tough for her to, to Jackie's point, to really penetrate the, the average Georgia voter, which doesn't have a private plane, that doesn't have millions of dollars to to move around and stop market, you know, before or a little bit before the coronavirus outbreak, is it, it just shows that she's kind of struggling with this ability for her to sort of show that she can actually relate to the Georgia voters. I would also say that you know to spend four million dollars uh, on you know the cell fund. I mean, we knew that was coming, right? And that's one of the reasons why I think Governor Kemp chose her to be his take for U.S. Senator because of her ability to sell fund. But the challenge with that is, is that there are some people saying that maybe that money would have been better used to put towards relief efforts rather than throwing it on television ads if you just look at the polling numbers. But I'm going to say this, Kevin, and this is going to probably stop Jackie because, you know, I, I would said on this show that I thought Jackie Gingrich Cushman would have been an excellent person uh, to be considered uh, for, this, for this seat. But I would say this. I think that if you're Doug Collins right now, you're, you're feeling you're feeling really good. You know, you, you think you're in the driver's seat. You clearly have a candidate who's got some challenges about how and what does she know around uh, moving her stocks around before the coronavirus outbreak. But if you're Kelly Leffler, you still have a governor uh, who the office of the governor is still a very, very powerful seat. She's got to figure out a way to not try to spin her way to getting of better poll numbers. I think her consultant team has got to put her into positions where she can show a love of humanization because we shouldn't punish her for being a multimillionaire. Lord knows I would love to be a multimillionaire. <laughs> but I do think that when you're running for office in this time, in this new norm, it's all about relatability. And I think that's one of the things that her campaign is sort of struggling with right now. Tamar, um, I think Theron brings up a good point. It's actually one I hear from people uh, uh, fairly routinely uh, about Leffler and others is, is this criticism of the fact that she's wealthy. I mean, many there are people who interpret that as, well, it's unfair. I mean, she's been successful. That does not disqualify her. So that's really why I asked the question about the private plane. I mean, what about that or, or what else in the ad, you know, from a someone who's covered politics for – you know, for someone so young, a lot of years, uh, you know, what else do you see in, in, in that ad? Sure. Well, well, first of all, I, I do want to talk about uh, the, the money part. I mean, she's wealthy, but she's wealthy on a scale that, that even puts other members of Congress to shame. We don't yet know exactly how much money she has. Um, 
but it's anywhere from 500 to 800 million. That would make her the richest member of Congress ever. So it's not like most you know members who might be a millionaire once or twice or three times over. This is on a scale that puts everyone else to shame. Um, one thing also that, that really stuck out to me about these ads is just how much she's trying to align herself with the president. He, of course, um, you know, was pushing Governor Kemp to, to pick Doug Collins over Kelly Loeffler, but she, she's really raced to get into the president's good graces. And you see it a lot with this ad, kind of linking herself to him. See, see all the criticism that, that Trump has gotten, Kelly Loeffler's getting it too. Isn't that a shame? Yeah. So I just want to pick up real quick on tomorrow. So, um, you know, clearly it's not, I think it's great. We need to, we need to um, you know, love American success and the fact that you're successful in business is a great thing. She did, you know, grow up in a farm, and she has those basic roots. But to your point, it's not about having the money. It's about having the connection and understanding how, you know, everyday Americans live and then showing that you really care. I mean, what people really want to know is do you care about voters like me, whoever that like me is, whether it's, you know, a mom or a dad or, a, you know, a, a young college student, you care about people like me. And I think they've really had a hard time making that connection because, the authenticity has been lacking in some ways, where even if you look at Doug Collins, who has been very critical of, of Senator Leffler, you know exactly who Doug Collins is. You may not like him or appreciate his positions, but he is always Doug Collins and always very authentic about who he is. And I think that makes a difference for voters. Aaron, I, I always wonder about this, though. I mean, why was the self-funding of a campaign so important? Is it just because it makes – I mean, obviously, it's easier to have the money than, than try to go get it. But but is that a overwhelming consideration for a candidate? Well, it, it is what Tamar said. I mean, she she nailed it. I mean, see, the thing about Kelly Leffler, uh, Kevin, is that she's not just rich. I mean, she's like really rich. Like you know, my, my wife would say, you know, like she she that she's got a, a real money. Um, and so the challenge is not that you you know rich and you have the ability to to self fund. And you got to think about it, Kevin, before this COVID-19 crisis that we're in, it was the belief that would it be a jungle primary for our listeners where it was going to be sort of a lot of people in a November race, that that was going to take a lot of money for her to either raise or to actually sell fund. And then I think the Kemp campaign was sort of thinking, Kemp camp was thinking that, you know, with her being a first-time candidate, if she can't raise a lot of money in this sort of tough climate, then the ability to fund to self-fund gives her an advantage and an edge. Now, they always sort of suspected that there was going to be outside super PAC money and others. But I think if you can look at how much money she's putting in now with, you know, and, and we're, we're in May, I think that she would have wanted to put that money in a little later. So anyway, that's, that's just kind of a, an excuse and sort of reasoning um, that I can come up with of why the self-funding part was so important uh, of why she was the pick. Okay, so we are out of time, uh, if you can believe it. Uh, that will do it for today. Uh, first, I want to thank our guests, uh, again, who joined us remotely, Theron Johnson, Jackie Cushman, and Tamara Hollerman. Thank you so much. It's uh, always a blast talking uh, to the three of you. And thank all of you for listening. Remember, if you missed any part of the show, or if you liked it so much you want to listen again, you can find it at gpbnews.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kevin Riley. Bill Nygut will be back with you for an all-new Political Rewind on Wednesday. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.